Well, it's good to be together this morning. Um, I hope your Thanksgiving was good. Um, it may surprise you, maybe it, maybe it won't, but not always on Sunday morning jumping out of bed super excited to get here, as I'm sure that's, that's true of you probably from time to time. I am sometimes and I'm not sometimes. But being here on Sunday and sitting under the Word of God and singing is a, uh, a stabilizing rhythm of the Christian life. Um, Hebrews tells us we're not to assake the assembling of ourselves together because sometimes we'll feel like it, sometimes we won't feel like it, but coming here and sitting under the objective truth of God's Word is just what our souls need. And in hearing God's Word from outside of us into our hearts is what changes us and changes our perspective and brings strength and joy. Um, and it's a good, good thing to be here together. And so I'm glad you're here. I'm glad to be here. And I'm glad to be studying God's Word together this morning. So you can open up to Ephesians chapter 4. I do hope you had a good Thanksgiving. And I'm, I'm sure many of you uh, enjoyed watching football on Thanksgiving. Um, there were no football games yesterday worth watching, so it's just to get that out there. But on Thanksgiving, um, you may have enjoyed watching, or at least it was on in the background for some of you. But if you go back a year, so 2019, if you go back to 2018, the week before Thanksgiving, um, the Washington Redskins were playing a football game, and their quarterback that day was a guy named Alex Smith. And during that game, about a week before Thanksgiving in 2018, Alex uh, was just going through the normal emotions of the game, and he suffered a devastating leg injury. Uh, he was tackled, and the video is just gruesome. Um, both of the bones in his lower leg snapped in half, and it was obvious immediately. They, they took him off the field straight to the hospital. Um, it took 17 surgeries to put his leg back together, and he battled an infection while he was in the hospital, and it could have cost him his life. Well, a week or two ago, one year after that injury for Alex, his wife posted a video online of the stages of his recovery, and it's a short video, but it's really a remarkable thing to watch. Um, they drove him home from the hospital after all of his surgeries in a wheelchair. Uh, he couldn't even walk. He had a giant brace. Um, it looked like something out of a science fiction novel or movie around his leg, holding his leg in place. And he had to keep this brace on for, I think it looked like for many months. Um, he had a walker in his house and he literally could not get up out of his chair and get around his house without the walker. And as you watch this short video, over the course of the past year, he he made progress and he made small steps day after day uh, and continued to, to heal up and continued to get better. And at the end of this video that his wife posted exactly one year later, uh, the last scene on this video is Alex running full speed on a treadmill. Um, and it's, it's an amazing thing to watch that recovery that he went through. So as you're thinking about that, his injury and then his recovery, I want you to think about two dates November 19th, 2018, the day after his injury, 
and November 19th, 2019, exactly one year later. In 2018, he literally could not walk at all, certainly not on his own. And in 2019, he can walk normally again. Two very different objective realities in his life. Two different states of, of existing for him. Not being able to walk and being able to walk. Now imagine for a moment after that year of work and effort and after experiencing a full recovery, imagine if Alex plopped back into the hospital bed and refused to get up and ever walk again. Now if he did that, we would think something bizarre is going on with him here. Why would he have the ability to walk and not do it, put it into practice? When you have that ability, especially for people who haven't been able to walk at some point and now can, it comes naturally to them. They want to put it into practice, and there's a certain joy in, in walking for him. I'm sure of it. And as you think about Alex and his situation in those two dates, the Christian life is no different in many ways. Our status has changed. The objective reality has changed for, for each of us, if you're a believer this morning. Now we have the ability to walk differently. Not physically walk, but spiritually walk. And if you're a true believer this morning in Christ, if you've trusted him for the forgiveness of sins and are resting in his grace, then you will, as a result of that, put your new walk into practice. You'll live differently now. And that picture, that change walking this way or not being able to walk and now being able to walk in new spiritual life is the entire way that Paul frames the book of Ephesians. That's the change that occurs. That's the message of the book. And we're at a turning point in the book here in chapter 4 and verse 1. He spent the first three chapters telling us who we are and telling us what God has done in us and giving us the objective reality of our new position in Christ. He's basically telling you, look, you can walk now, spiritually speaking, and now in chapters four through six, he's going to say to us, okay, get up off the couch and put that reality into practice. Start actually walking by the power of the Spirit because of who you now are in Christ. And as he does this, the very first place he goes in chapter 4 is how we walk together. What do our relationships with one another in the church look like? How do we live life with those around us as believers? And that's what we're going to look at in chapter 4, verses 1 to 16. And this is part 1. Sue groaned when she saw part 1 on the bulletin. And I said, oh yeah, it's coming. Part 1, 2, maybe 3 even. We'll see. But chapters 4 to 1 to 16, and what we're going to see here is three practices to pursue unity as Christ's body. Three practices to pursue unity as Christ's body, to put into practice the identity that we've uncovered in chapters 1 to 3. And the first one of these is to grow in virtue and love. And this is in verses 1 to 3. Now, as we get into this, before we jump specifically into the unity that we have with one another, Paul is going to tie our ethics 
our actions, the way we live life, back to our identity. I mean, if you, if you look at the banner up here, that's the whole way we've structured this series. We're in the reacting portion now, the ethical portion, the way we live life portion of the book of Ephesians, but this is built on the first three chapters. And you'll see Paul brings out themes and ideas that he's discussed in the first three chapters over and over again in chapters four to six. And look how he does this in verse one. I therefore... That word, therefore, connects you back. He's saying, look, therefore, because of what I've just given to you in chapters 1 to 3, because of who you are, I'm going to urge you to live in a particular way. And it's interesting here. He says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord. He sort of throws that in. I'm a prisoner of the Lord because he's subtly reminding them, look, I have walked in a certain way. I have worked these things out in my life and it has cost me dearly. And I'm actually in prison because I'm, I'm living out these doctrinal truths. I've been affected by who I am in Christ and I'm living it out and I've ended up in prison because of that. And so what he's doing here is he's built a doctrinal theological base in chapters 1 to 3 and now in 4 to 6 he's going to build a lifestyle based on those theological truths. And this is not unusual for Paul. This is sort of the way he operates. In fact, if you, if you were to look at chapter 4, verse 1 in Greek, and then look at Romans 12, 1, which is a very familiar verse to you, you would see that it's the same three words in Greek that begin this verse. I appeal to you, therefore. It's the same thing. And in Romans, he's pretty much done the same thing. He's built this doctrinal base, and now he's going to tell you how to live In response to that, in both of these passages, if you look back at Ephesians 4.1, he says, I urge you, that I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you. What does it look like to urge someone to action? Well, the picture that comes to my mind, because I'm a sports guy, is a coach trying to prepare and motivate his players for the game, right? The coach is in the locker room and he's speaking passionately to his players and he's trying to tell them with urgency and with energy that if they will listen to the game plan that he has laid out for them, then they will be successful in this game and that they will win. He's trying to give them confidence and motivation to play and give it everything they have. And that's what Paul is doing here. And Paul understands, just like the coach, that ultimately Paul is not the one on the field. They are on the field. And so the responsibility lies with them. They have to put these things into practice. And so he's passionately exhorting them and urging them to do just that. And here's what he's urging them to do. Look at verse 1 again. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk. He's urging them to walk. Now, we, we've talked about this idea of walking before, and this is a metaphor. He's not talking physically for them to get out of their, of their house and go walking. He's talking metaphorically. And when he uses this idea of walking in the book of Ephesians and elsewhere, he's talking about the way they live life, the rhythm of their, their life, their lives, the lifestyle, the practices that they do day after day, all the actions and thinking that make up the way they live life. It's what they do with their time. 
a valuable commodity that we've been given, maybe the most valuable. And in the book of Ephesians, your walk is a key idea. We've already seen this idea. I mean, flip back in your Bible to chapter 2 and verse 1. 1 and 2. Chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Paul's already made it quite clear to them that they used to walk in a particular way. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. They used to walk in spiritual deadness and sin and disobedience. That's how they came into this world. We all did. And that was their lifestyle. They followed a particular way of living. But if you were to go back and read chapter 2, look at verse 4. But God, and there's a change here that has been brought into their lives because of the work of God through Jesus Christ. Verse 8, they have received grace. They've been saved through faith, not of their own works. It is a gift of God. And because God has wrought this grace in their lives, look at verse 10. Now... We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So now they have moved from walking in their sins to God saving them by grace through faith and preparing these good works that they are to walk in. And now in verses in chapters four to six, here are the good works that he mentioned in chapter two and verse 10 the good works that he has prepared for them to walk in. Now he's saying, this is what those works are. This is what God saves us for. This is how we live in response to his grace, the benefits that we have received in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you go back to Ephesians 4.1, this walk, this lifestyle must be lived in a particular way. Look again there. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. What does that mean, to walk worthy of the calling to which you've been called? Well, picture a giant seesaw. Those probably are not allowed on playgrounds these days, but picture one if you can. A giant seesaw. And on one side of this seesaw, you have the benefits that you have in the Lord Jesus Christ. You have your new status in the body of Christ. You are united with other believers. You have been saved by grace. You have an inheritance in Christ. And so you've got that on this side. And then on the other side, you put your actions. And those actions need to be equivalent or worthy or suitable to the benefits and the calling with which you've been called. Now, you're not earning your calling. You don't do all of these things over here in order to get this calling. But because you have this calling, you walk and you live in a certain way. It is suitable. It matches the calling. It fits the calling. The calling is by grace, and then because you've received that grace, you respond and say, I want to live in a particular way. And because Paul has stressed so much in chapters 1 to 3 that our calling brings us into the body of Christ, 
We are one new man with others. We have been united in Christ together. We're all in this church together as members of the body of Christ because he has stressed that so much. Now he turns in verses 2 to 3 and he says, here's the walk that is worthy of the calling with which you've been called. You've been called to unity, so now here's what you do in your lifestyle. And he lays out these virtues and actions for us in verses 2 to 3. So, first of all, in verse 2, you find three character qualities. And these character qualities define our relationships with one another. I mean, these are the qualities that need to grow inside of you and I. They become more and more natural in us every day so that we can relate in a worthy way with those around us. Verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience. So you've got three character qualities there, humility, gentleness, and patience. First of all, Paul says, look, to be able to walk worthy in your relationships with one another, you need to cultivate humility. And we need to cultivate humility because Christ is the ultimate example of humility. It means thinking of others as more important than yourselves. We follow his example. And so because we want to walk worthy of our calling, we cultivate this character quality of humility. This is the exact opposite of pride. We think of others as more important than ourselves. Pride tears down the unity that we have in Christ. Humility builds it up. The second of these qualities is listed here as gentleness. Now, gentleness, the word here is the same word that's used in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And this is a tough one, right? Because we think of of gentleness as something that is weak or is quiet. But that's not the sense in this word here at all, and that's certainly not the sense in the Beatitudes when the meek inherit the earth. Jesus was the best example of gentleness, and he was certainly not weak, and he was certainly not quiet, sort of mousy in the background. So what does it look like to be gentle? And this is important because this is a a quality that we need to put on so we can live in unity with one another. Well, this word here for gentle is used in the context of training an animal, which is interesting. But you train your animal to react appropriately to a given situation. So let's say that you are training a guard dog. Well, you want that dog to be kind and easy and tender and quiet with your family and with your friends in the right situation, but you also want that guard dog to be loud and aggressive and firm with a potential thief. You want the dog to have the control to be able to react appropriately to the given situation. And so to be gentle means you have your emotions and your reactions under control. And you're able to respond appropriately and rightly to a given situation. One author said this about someone who is gentle, and I thought this was very helpful. The man who is gentle is the man who is always angry at the right time and never angry at the wrong time because he knows the difference. 
and he's able to control his emotions. Gentleness is, just, is not just constantly letting everyone run over you, just being quiet. Gentleness is knowing the difference, and it's knowing when you need to be that attack dog and you need to be firm with the truth, and it's knowing when you need to be patient and gracious. I mean, think about another way to illustrate this. Think about the ideal knight or warrior in the Middle Ages, right? What's attractive to us about the ideal knight? Well, he's a gentleman in the king's court. He's kind, and he's smooth, and he's gracious, and he's able to talk about different things with those around him. At royal dinners, he handles himself in a gentlemanly fashion. But you take that same gentleman knight out into the battlefield, and he will quite literally rip your head off, because that's what he's called to do in that situation. This is the type of person that each one of us is called to be. We are called to be gentle, to be able to control our emotions and our reactions and have them be appropriate to a given situation. Why is this important for unity? Well, our calling to live in unity demands that we treat one another with kindness and grace, but it also demands that we know when a commitment to the truth requires us to speak out and to not waver and to be firm. We need to know how to handle ourselves appropriately. The last of these qualities is patience. When you think of patience, think of a farmer waiting for the harvest waiting for the harvest that he's hoping for. He's looking to the future. He doesn't see the fruit of his labor now, but he's anticipating and he's hoping and he's waiting for it to come. He's waiting for the results that he's hoping for. And why is this so important as we live together in the body of Christ? Well, it's really easy to get frustrated with one another. God is not sanctifying you as fast as I would like him to. Me either right? It's easy to think that about the other person. But God has been incredibly patient with you and I, hasn't he? My sanctification is going so slowly, and yet he is faithful, and he is patient, and he is gracious and kind. And so to walk in a way that matches my calling, that is suitable to my calling, means to bend that patience that I have received out to everyone else. And so it means to be patient with the shortcomings of those around me. And it means to understand that everyone else is being patient with my shortcomings too. I have them just like everyone else does. It's very easy to be sort of done with people when they mess up. Well, I'm done with him. But that's not how God has dealt with you or me. He is not done with us because we mess up. He has been patient and he has been long-suffering with us. And so when we know our calling, when we know the grace that we have received, then it should come very natural for us to be patient with one another. And so cultivate those virtues of humility and gentleness and patience and cultivate them 
by going back and remembering who you are in chapters one to three. And when we cultivate those virtues, those qualities, there are now two actions that we consistently perform. Look in verse two. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. This is the first action. We bear with one another in love. This means to tolerate someone else's faults. Now, of course, you're not telling them that you're tolerating their faults. You know, I'm, I'm just putting up with you, even though you're annoying to me. But walking worthy of our calling means that, listen, you go back to chapter 2 and you know that God has brought a great diversity of people into the body together. We're all different. And that is actually for his glory that these different people have been brought together. And so we are going to be different. We're going to like different things. We're going to annoy one another at times. We're going to sin against each other. It's going to happen. But that's the beauty of the body of Christ. And understanding our calling, the grace that we have received, means that because we love one another and we want what's best for one another, we continue to bear with one another. And we tolerate it. And we put up with it. And we continue to grow in love. And there's a second action here. As we're bearing with one another, as we're cultivating these virtues, here's the umbrella over all of it. Verse 3, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We do all of these other things. We cultivate these virtues because we're eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Now, what's interesting here, the first thing I want you to notice is he does not tell us to create the unity of the Spirit, does he? This is not something that you and I manufacture. Why? Because we already have the unity of the Spirit. We have been placed in the body together. God has done the work of uniting us together in the body of Christ. That happens when we're saved. We're saved into the body of Christ. We're united with Christ. And so what he's telling you here is you've already been given the gift of unity objectively. So now preserve that unity. Maintain what you already have. I mean, think of this as home maintenance or car maintenance, right? You you have to change your oil every so often. Things in this fallen world tend to decay. And so we have to maintain the unity that we have been given. There's work to be done around the house. And that maintenance takes effort. It's not effort to earn God's favor. It's effort that results from God's favor. And we are eager to maintain that unity. To be eager means to be passionate and hungry and zealous I am all about maintaining this unity when I'm eager in the way Paul is describing here. To live suitably to our salvation, to balance the seesaw out, means I intentionally and even aggressively seek to maintain unity. So what might this eagerness look like in the life of the church? 
I mean, functionally speaking, practically speaking, what would it actually look like for you and I to be eager, zealous to maintain unity? Well, it may look like purposefully, intentionally calling someone who's been absent for several weeks. You haven't seen them around and you're concerned about them and you don't call them to pester them and to nail them. Well, I haven't seen you there in a couple weeks. What are you doing? You call them to express concern and love, and you miss them. Eagerness might look like dropping someone a note, just as an encouragement. Tell them you're praying for them. Eagerness might mean inviting a couple or a family in the body that you just don't know well over and get to know them. At the most basic level, eagerness to maintain unity probably means I am more interested in other people than I am in myself. And so that means that I ask people questions and I want to know about them and I'm concerned about their well-being and I don't just talk about myself all the time. It means I get to know other people. I'm genuinely curious about their lives, their story and what God has done in them And so I ask, and I want to know, and I am attentive to other people. Eagerness to maintain unity probably means that I stop gossip dead in its tracks. And I hate gossip because there's nothing that brings division more than slander and gossip in the body of Christ. And so I shut it down without apology because I am eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Could mean just just giving a little bit of grace and kindness to one another. Being slow to anger and patient and gentle. So it could mean any of those things. And it, it probably means a million more. You can think of specific applications for yourself. But Paul is as subtle as a fire alarm here. I mean, he is practically shouting at us. If you understand your salvation and what you have been called from and to, then you'll, look, you'll walk this way. This will be natural to you. You will be zealous to protect and preserve the unity that we have through the work of the Spirit. We've talked a lot about unity. But what, what are we actually unified around? What brings us together? You know, our culture will tell us that unity is just sort of a a, a cheap affirmation of you and however you want to live and however you feel. And we all should just get along and be unified. But true unity comes from being centered on something, something that brings us together that we have in common that we all share. And that's where Paul goes next in verses four to six. So three practices to pursue unity. First of all, grow in virtue and love in verses one to three. And second, remember our common faith. You have to know what we hold together in common. True unity in the church is built on what we have in common. There's going to be differences in background, in socioeconomic status, in ethnicity, There's going to be differences in every other area imaginable. 
But in order to maintain unity in a diverse body, we constantly go back to what we hold in common and what brings us together. And that is Paul's point in verses four to six. And I'm going to read these verses all in one pop to you. And I want you to see how many times he uses the word one here. Verse four. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. He's stressing the unity, the commonality of what we have together in Christ. So what do we share with one another? First of all, verse 4, There is one church body. This takes us back to chapter 2 and verse 16. And that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. You and I have been placed together in the church. You have more in common with the believer who is living in Saudi Arabia, speaking a completely different language, than you do with your sibling who does not know the Lord Jesus Christ. We have been united together in one body. That's true universally, but it's even more true locally in the expression of the universal body that we find here at Woodhaven Bible Church. This is an outpost of Christ's kingdom, and we've been put together in this body around Christ. Secondly, we share in the same spirit, verse 4. There's one spirit. Listen to chapter 2 and verse 18. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. The same Holy Spirit dwells in each person who's a believer here today. Think about that for a second. The same Holy Spirit is at work in you as is at work in that person who you find annoying three aisles over. The same Holy Spirit is doing his sanctifying work in both of us. That's what brings us together. One spirit. Third, we have one call from God that results in the same hope, the same expectation for the future. Verse four, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. A biblical hope that you and I will rise from the dead with Christ one day and spend eternity with God in a new body. We have that same hope and same expectation. We're looking forward to the same thing. And none of us were born with that hope, as you can see back in chapter 2 and verse 12, but now we have that hope. Fourth, we have one Lord, Jesus Christ. He is our authority He is our master. We are on the same team. We serve the same master. We have the same marching instructions with the same commander. Fifth, we share in the same faith, verse 5. There's a couple of options here, and both of them are true. This could be the same experience of coming to Christ by faith, by grace, or this could be the same system of belief, Jude, verse 3, talks about this. The faith once delivered to the saints. It could be either one. Let's go for both. Both are true. We have both of those things in common. Sixth, 
one baptism. This is talking about not necessarily water baptism, but union with Christ. We have been immersed in him, covered in him, united to him. And the act of water baptism gives us a picture of that. You're buried with Christ, covered in his death, and raised to walk in new life, worthy of the calling with which you've been called. Finally, seventh, there's one God and Father of all. He's the sovereign king of all. He is orchestrating his plans and his purposes, and we all exist for him and to bring him glory. Now, I want you to notice something about this progression here. Chapter, or verse 4 deals with the Spirit. Verse 5 deals with the Lord Jesus Christ. And verse 6 deals with the Father. So you've got all three members of the Trinity here who are involved in the work of salvation and in what God is doing in us and among us. But, but what's the ultimate common denominator that we all have in common? It's the triune God. God's unity within the Godhead serves as the example and the model and motivates us to pursue unity with one another. God is gloriously unified in the Trinity. And he, Jesus actually prays in John 17 that we would be one as he is one. We'd be one in our union with him and one in our union with one another. He values our unity together. So, this morning, we've gotten to two of these practices, and there's a third one that we'll get to next week. But these are practices, these are things we put into practice to pursue unity as Christ's body, as the church. And next week, we'll talk in more detail about the diversity that we have as the church and how that glorious diversity of gifts actually helps to build unity. God has put us together with people who are different, but when we all play our part and our role, the body is built up and grows stronger and more Christ-like and more unified. But let me end this morning by just encouraging you to do one thing in response to this. Think while I pray, and maybe during the time when we take the Lord's Supper, think about one thing you can do, one action that you can do this week that will help to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace that we have together. I gave you some examples earlier. But if every person in this body went and said, I'm going to do one thing eagerly and intentionally to help to maintain unity, that would be a wonderful start to this. What's one action you can take to, to pull the bonds of unity tighter here at Woodhaven Bible Church? Consider that as we pray. Let's pray. Father, what a gift we have in the church, in the unity that we have in Christ. I thank you for this body. I thank you for the diversity of gifts. I thank you for the opportunity to pursue unity together. I pray that you would strengthen us, even as we, we saw in chapter 3. Strengthen our inner man, motivate us 
to maintain unity, to eagerly pursue preserving the unity that we have in Christ. Give us the the knowledge of the common denominator, what holds us together. Help us to continually go back to these realities, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, one spirit. Help us to go back to these realities and to soak ourselves in them so that we focus on the things that we have in common and not the things that separate us. Thank you for all you've done. Thank you for your grace. It's in Christ's name we pray.